Houston Dynamo, Portland Timbers, Sporting Kansas, Los Angeles Galaxy, Beach Pass, Toronto FC, Salt Lake, Chicago Fire, Columbus Crew, FC Dallas, York Red Bulls, Pitch Pass, your all-access credential to the people that matter in MLS. Here's your host, Greg Roach. Do you feel that? It's pitch pass excitement, and I feel like it's spreading throughout the American soccer community, and it's thanks to you. Appreciate you downloading the episode. That's job one. Job two is going to iTunes, maybe leaving a comment or two. Job three, talking about the show on Twitter, at pitch pass to follow us. If you enjoy an episode, share with your friends and followers on Twitter. It would help get the word out about our little show here. Later on, we'll have Sporting Kansas City defender Jaleel Anibaba on. He had a hand in Sporting's victory over Philadelphia Union this past weekend. But first, I want to bring in a good friend of the show, and that would be Fox Sports' Kyle McCarthy. Spent some time with the national team in Europe last week, and I want to get his vibe on the CONCACAF Champions League, which is on Fox Sports 2. But first, Kyle, I'm assuming you had a chance to check out the match between Sporting Kansas City and Fox Sports 1 last week. I did. Fox Sports 1. Exactly. I figured you would watch it. I didn't want to put you on the spot, but, and then you go, oh, I actually didn't see it. But you, I know you saw it. Always. So, uh, look, it was great that, for the comeback. It was great atmosphere. Uh, it was great for the sporting fans to see uh, those those last-minute goals to, to take the three points. But at the end of the day, should it have been that hard to, to beat Philadelphia Union, a team that is absolutely scuffling um, when you are sporting Kansas City and you're having that match at home? No, it, it certainly shouldn't be. And sporting has, has made a habit over the years of making life a little bit more difficult than it needs to be uh, at Sporting Park. And that's because opposing teams know that if they sit back and, and try and tempt Sporting up, that maybe they could hit them on the break. And that's what the union did. And But the Sporting managed to, to get through it and then staged that late comeback. You'd like it to be a little easier, but... Uh, you can't fault the drama, right? No, not at all. And points are points, and uh, we say it all the time on the show. It doesn't matter whether they come in March and April or they come in September, October. The points are the points, and they're collecting their points. What what are they lacking at this point? Is it a cohesion, or are they missing some pieces that they're going to have to fill in uh, come July? It's more cohesion. I think they're still trying to sort out the balance in midfield. They've made a lot of alterations in that department over the past six to nine months or so, and, and they're just trying to make sure that everything is, is kind of warring to life, you know? When, when you have a system like that, you, you need to make sure all the pieces are moving in concert, and I'm not sure sporting's quite there yet, but uh, if you keep collecting points along the way, uh, it provides you with a little bit of latitude to, to make sure everything is in working order when the season really starts to heat up. One of MLS's hallmarks uh, worldwide is probably American goalkeeping. We're seeing a move away from American keepers, it feels like, uh, in the league. And to me, the, the, the keeper quality this season has been as poor as I can remember. It's sporting's keeper, uh, not great. Um, obviously, we've seen what's going on in Philadelphia. Um, what do you think is causing this whole uh, American keepers now are not good enough to play for MLS squads? It's, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, if you look at the, the U.S. youth teams as well, there aren't a lot of domestic-based keepers coming through those ranks. And, and part of that is simply a lack of opportunity. When you look at MLS teams, they're going out and they're getting established number ones, guys who are coming in and expecting to start. And they're sending their, their young players off uh, on loan to NASL or USL teams. And that that has a trickle-down effect. Uh, it really depends on the situation. It's tough to paint it with a broad brush, 
But you look at a player like Tyler Derrick, for example, right? Mm-hmm. He, he served an extended uh, period of time as a backup in Houston at Tally Hall. He learned his craft, and now he's stepped in this year, and he's performed very well. And that's, that's a, an encouraging sign in that department. But there are other instances over the past couple of years where guys have had that opportunity and not taken it. So it's really a, an interesting situation uh, considering the way that American goalkeepers have generally produced over the years. You mentioned the national team setup. You were actually over in Europe for the last round of friendlies. I also, if I followed your Twitter correctly, I also saw that you actually went to a couple of uh, Bundesliga games. Did you happen to end up at any of the practices uh, for the Bundesliga squads as well while you were there? So I, I had a chance to, to go to Germany and see three games in, in three days before I, I went on the national team coverage uh, duties. And it was really interesting because, for me, I, I'm so focused on MLS and the U.S. national team that sometimes I don't get a chance to to go out and see other leagues. Yeah. Like I, I get a chance to see Champions League a lot because it's a, it's a Fox property and, and we always focus on that. But the chance to go out and, and see Bundesliga games in that environment and to have a chance to tour some of the facilities was really eye-opening for me. It, it's a, a really fantastic opportunity to, to get a feel for the league and uh, see some of the stuff that's getting done over there and, and how it's different uh, than, than what's going on in MLS. You know, and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, but, you know, you bring up the fact that you were able to go a couple of different league matches. Um, look, Bundesliga is nowhere near, was light years ahead of where MLS is, but... I look at the Bundesliga as as a league that that MLS could strive or maybe the next tier that they should be striving for before you start getting into the huge money deals of say La Liga or the or the English Premier League. Um, what were some of the things that you were struck by when you were at the matches in in Germany? Uh, one is the passion of the fans. Uh, you, you go to a match in Germany and everyone in the ground is invested in it from moment one, and you're starting to see that in MLS. Yeah. When you go to Seattle and Portland and Kansas City and you know five or six other markets, I mean, you see that, um, and that's good. Uh, the second thing for me is the off-the-field infrastructure, and, and that's where you see a gap between MLS teams who are doing the best with, with what they have in terms of resources and Bundesliga clubs who, who have the latitude to really invest in the back end to make sure that everything is at the top level. I had a chance to, to go tour uh, VFB Stuttgart's new youth academy. No joke, it's nicer than probably every MLS facility. Wow. In terms of like a practice set up, in terms of what they have. I mean, you're talking about a, a situation where every youth team has its own locker room. They have wow. dedicated medical facilities and gym facilities for their youth team players. And you're not right? talking. And you're not talking about Bayern or or Dortmund, like the the upper level. When you think of Bundesliga clubs, Stuttgart is a is a mid table club generally. And that's the and that's the the kicker, right? So if you're MLS and you want to strive to be one of the top leagues in the world, and you see that happening at a club right now that's currently fighting against relegation from the Bundesliga, it, it's really an eye opening experience because the the standards elsewhere are so high, and and MLS is doing a good job of trying to improve from a facilities perspective. When you look at the soccer-specific stadiums, you look at some of the work that's been done uh, off the field with, with training facilities. I think Toronto FC, for example, is a, is a club that's done uh, a lot in that department. But there's still a long, long way to go. And, and when you have a chance to go over and see something like that, 
it really places everything in perspective in a global sense. Now, it's not an apples-to-apples situation. Obviously, Germany football is the national sport as opposed to soccer, which is well down the list here in the States. But these stadiums, I mean, and I'm putting Allianz aside, but these stadiums aren't huge cathedrals like you see in Spain or England. So where are these clubs getting the revenue? Where's a Stuttgart getting the revenue that they can then invest so much money into their youth setups? Well, part of it is is the television deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bundesliga is continuing to, to improve in that department. Part of it is, is just being a, a participant in the world market in terms of developing players and then selling them on to other clubs because that'll that'll actually allows them some of the revenue to to go out and and do these infrastructure projects and and part of it is simply the fact that they have a broader base to draw from when you're you know, pack in 50 or 60,000 people in the stadiums every weekend. It's not just the ticket sales because Bundesliga clubs keep their prices low, uh, but it's also the, the possibility for sponsorships. It's the possibility of uh, merchandise sales and, and all the sort of attendance stuff that goes with, with increasing the base of the club itself. And, and MLS is striving toward that, uh, but that's a long process to go from – 20,000 fans a weekend to 40 or 50, yeah. uh, that, that's tough, and it takes time. This is a multi-layered question, um, so feel free to attack it from whatever angle you, you want to start at. But, you know, uh, we have a German head coach who is under a lot of fire recently uh, over his, his training techniques and, and his questioning of the national team members, uh, their fitness, and, and then some of the injuries that they're picking up uh, in the course of a national team setups. You were checking out or you were watching uh, Bundesliga practices, German practices. Uh, how do they compare and contrast to what Klinsmann is doing? And did you see anything during this European training camp setup that you thought to yourself, wow, he's working them too hard, or these, these, these rumors are a bit overblown? It's it's a nuanced question, right? Yes. Because I think part of it, part of it is a, a, a displeasure within certain factors of the American soccer community with with Klinsman himself, and somehow that manifests into a, a focus on the things that he does differently than everyone else. And there's some criticism that's deserved there, and there's some criticism that's not. I had a chance to to watch a couple of U.S. training sessions while it was over in in Europe, and uh, I didn't see anything that was crazy in, in terms of uh, <laughs> fitness-based stuff. Like, I, I mean, I saw a lot of just standard trying to keep everyone ticking over sort of stuff. But uh, when when you look at Jurgen Klinsmann, he's focused on getting his players fit across the board, and that's important in the world game. When you look at the pace and the tempo of MLS games, they're slower than games at the top international levels in the top leagues. That's just a, a fact of, of how things function right now. So if you're Jurgen Klinsmann and you want to get the U.S. to a position where it is more competitive with the top teams in the world, you've got to find a way to increase the way MLS players can make that leap. You've got to put them in the best possible position. And, and he thinks that, that entree is fitness. And, and I think there's some backing behind it, but it, it's also a, a contention that has caused a lot of rancor, too. Yeah, and as this is a total neophyte question, but I understand uh, focusing on fitness maybe during January camps or, or lead-ups to, to tournaments like World Cup last summer or maybe Gold Cup this summer. 
How much fitness can you work on when you really got the guys for for seven days, two of which are match days, and so you'd figure the the day before and the day after are are getting ready and recovering? What is is working on fitness during that week a, a misplace of priorities? It would be, and that's why I think a lot of the focus for the U.S. and the build-up to that game against Switzerland was tactical in terms of installing a system and making sure that the players understood how and where they needed to be and, and how the team shape needed to look. That's what you can do in seven days. And, and Klinsman has said that in the past, that it, it's not easy to, to really implement stuff in two or three days or, or even seven. Uh, you need those extended camps like you have in January to, to really make an impact from a fitness perspective on these players. And uh, it's it's divisive, certainly. Um, but when you look at the way the, the world game is evolving and with the, the focus on absorbing pressure and then countering quickly and then preparing for the counter to the counter, it's it makes it, it makes it understandable to see why he would want to focus that much on fitness. It's a pertinent question because of uh, the, the, the way the camp was set up or, the, or this round of international friendlies was set up. Uh, I feel like being in Europe is a, is a great way to get a, a really good gauge on, on how close and how bonded the team is. Uh, even camps that happen in the States, somebody invariably is close to home and, and can, can, can kind of stay in touch with and live kind of a normal lifestyle. That doesn't happen in Europe. And you being over there, it's a great question to ask you. And, and that is, you know, we heard a lot going into World Cup and maybe some grumbling during and after World Cup about uh, maybe tactics and techniques and the way things are going to be going, going about from, from, uh, from, from the players. How does the team seem to you uh, after that week in Europe as far as uh, their bond and how they're feeling about their head coach? It seems like to me that, that everything is kind of ticking along. Uh, there's a focus and an understanding that the goal is the Gold Cup this summer. The uh, U.S. national team wants to get to the Confederations Cup in 2017 for a host of reasons. And, and that has to be the focus. And, and there's some understanding there as well that, that there needs to be a gradual progression uh, for the side from, uh, from the World Cup last summer through uh, to the Gold Cup this year. And, and there's been some need for experimentation. And, and I think you, you've seen a group that understood that it needed to improve and, and was able to use the time in Switzerland to – to establish some of that familiarity, get on the same page tactically, and then put together a performance that in Switzerland was good enough to get a result. And I think when you have the result at the end of the camp, it validates all of the work that's been done before that. And that's, a, that's important for a team that has had some struggles uh, in the post-World Cup matches. For people who don't cover the, the national team and more so follow it as, as fans, uh, we, we hear a lot about, uh, you know, your, your pro and your, your anti-Klingsman camps uh, both have their, their rallying cries. But, you know, one of the things that we've heard a lot is the, the tinkering. Um, you, it's understandable. And if somebody throws out, well, he's tinkering, he's supposed to tinker at this time, there's really not a sound uh, retort to that. When, though, do we say the time the tinker is over, this is what I want to see? You mentioned that uh, the goal seems to be Gold Cup. Are we not going to see the what the, the non-tinkering Jurgen Klinsmann until Gold Cup matches start? Or is there going to be a point sometime between now and Gold Cup where we're going to see, okay, he's done tinkering, this is what he wants to do? I, I think as that Gold Cup progresses, you'll, you'll see everything sort of 
come into a clearer focus. Uh, I think the the past few matches have been trying to assess the player pool and, and trying to broaden the player pool to, to get guys into the fold and see whether they fit into the plans going forward. But as the Gold Cup approaches, you naturally need to streamline things. You, you have to get down to a 30-man roster, and you have to figure out how you want to manage that roster with the possibility of swapping players in and out after the group stage. So I think you'll see once the, the U.S. national team goes to Europe in June, for those matches against the Netherlands and Germany, uh, you'll start to see some things take shape. And then uh, as that Gold Cup approaches, you'll see a a more uh, stratified look at things, a a way to to really get a a feel for for what this U.S. team is going to be. Because at this stage, uh, you're starting to see some of the foundational pieces, but it's not entirely in focus yet. You know, I was going to ask you some rev stuff, but I think we're going to save that. I mean, you're you're a frequent guest of Pitch Pass, and I know you've been traveling all over the world. Uh, you know, just big picture question. Revs are just in a holding pattern waiting for Jermaine Jones to come back, and any points they happen to clip before then are feel to me like gravy, especially after the start they got off to. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair enough assessment when you look at, at the revs. They're, they're a different team with Jermaine Jones. He makes them tick. He, he gives them that extra bite in midfield, and he really – opens the way they attack with, with his range of passing. Uh, the Revs are a team that are built on the counter, uh, and you saw that in Colorado last weekend where, where that, that first goal with Kellen Rowe hitting that long diagonal to, to Juan Agadello and Agadello finishing off the move with the plum. That's, that's Rev soccer. They, they want to break quickly and, and punish teams uh, that are a little bit stretched. And when you have Jermaine Jones in your lineup, you're better at winning the ball and you're better at breaking quickly. So I think it's tough to get a gauge for the Revs until you see Jones in the lineup for a few games and until some of those defensive uh, personnel issues sort themselves out. You mentioned Fox Sports 1 and their coverage of UEFA Champions League. Uh, Fox Sports 2 is where you'll find most of the CONCACAF Champions League, including the, uh, well, the fantastic uh, Alawalense, hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, impact match, and then the, the demolition by Club America as we go into CONCACAF Champions League final. Um, you know, I, I equated this yesterday on Twitter of, of, a, of a plucky underdog team who, who kind of fought all odds to get to a final, and then they went and scouted out who they're playing against. And it's like a, it's like a machine, like a Soviet-era machine of hockey uh, if you watch Club America. Uh, how much respect do we give America's result yesterday? Uh, and what does that say about the prospects for impact making maybe the first-ever MLS club to win the CONCACAF Champions League? The result deserves a ton of respect, uh, but you have to put it in context. That first leg between uh, Herediano and America was nasty, absolutely nasty. And Herediano made the rather poor choice to poke at America during that first leg. They won it 3-0. It was an ugly, ugly match. And America basically, in the build-up to that game, said, we are not going to take that from you guys, and we're going to show you how silly you were to do that. <laughs> and they just came out and stomped them. And uh, it, it's, it's a difficult situation for the impact because of the way the final is going to be aligned, right? Normally, you would think playing at home in that second leg is a pretty significant advantage. But the problem is that the impacts have to go and yes. get some form of a result at Estadio Azteca in the first leg. And it's not difficult to envision a scenario where 
America wins that first leg 3-1, 4-0, and it's over. So uh, it's really a difficult task ahead for the impact. When you look at what the impact did, and a lot has been said about how they took this tournament seriously, they did their preseason in Mexico. Are we too far past preseason in Mexico for any of that, uh, the, the, any of the benefits that they got by doing that, going back to Mexico and going back to, Sta- not Stadio Azteca, but being back in Mexico? It, or are we too far past what they did in preseason for that to matter anymore? There may be some modest benefits, but the difference between playing at Pachuca and playing at Estadio Azteca is, is massive anyways. Uh, I don't think they're going to derive a whole lot of familiarity from that. I, I think when, when you look at the, the unique challenge of going to play in Mexico City at Estadio Azteca, in that smog, in that, that altitude, uh, it's a whole different scenario. And the problem for the impact is that they're going to have to adjust very quickly to that, and it's it's going to be tricky. Uh, they're going to have to find a way to to devise a game plan that's a little bit different than what they've been doing. Because if they come in and sit in against America, they're going to have some real trouble. So they've got to find that balance between being solid defensively and then pushing out enough uh, where they're not just relying on that quick counter. It's a difficult question to ask uh, as an MLS fan because it's it's an opinion answer. But I'm going to try and do it anyway. Um, you know, we see matches like we saw at Alawalense, uh Azteca. It seems to me as if MLS is the only league in this competition that doesn't have any gimme games. Where you think of, oh, you go to Costa Rica, it's going to be hard to get a result. And I don't know if we can, because at first you think to yourself, oh, well, it's just about the crowds. Well, I don't know if that's true because because Seattle got crowds for CONCACAF Champions League, and it doesn't always equate to a 3 nothing, 4 nothing hole that the other team has to then go back to their home stadium and, and go get those points back. As an MLS fan, we, we put stock in CONCACAF Champions League, but not too much because it's always one of those things of, oh, okay, well, we're not set up to win those competitions. But you kind of want to win those competitions because it's a, it's a harbinger or gauge of where your league's at. So I, I don't know if the question is how far away from are we from MLS being one of those strongholds like Central America and Mexico enjoy when they play their matches at home? Or is it just we just have to keep grinding out results and this is just what life is like as an MLS team in CONCACAF Champions League? I think, I think it's more the latter at this point. When you look at the disparity and the resources between MLS clubs and Mexican clubs, it's always going to be an uphill battle simply because the, the budgets are that different. And you made a good point about the difference in going on the road to a place like Mexico or Costa Rica and uh, you know going to Seattle or Kansas City or someplace. And Seattle and Kansas City are difficult places to play, yes. but you're also not going to have any of the attendant unnecessary stuff yes. that you face when you go to Central America. You're not going to have Costa- know, the, the pressure people, the pressure. Yeah, the, Co- and, Co- mean, and Costa, Re- Costa Ricans, uh, the, the clubs, they, they may go and walk out at CenturyLink and go, wow, this is a great crowd, but they don't fear anything. Their shoes being thrown at, at impact players, you're never going to see that at an American or Canadian venue. And And that's part of it too, right? I mean – that's not to say it's it's easy to play in some of those MLS venues because it's not. Those are those are difficult atmospheres, but it's a different 
kind of challenge when you go to Alahuense or yes. you go to Club America. And there's not really a way for MLS teams to really prepare for it unless they've experienced it. And and you've seen that over the years with the difficulty that MLS teams have had in Mexico. It's not just going to play against a good team that has a higher budget and has probably better players. It's it's going into an atmosphere where you feel a little bit uncomfortable, where you know maybe you don't have the food you want. Maybe you yeah. didn't have the night's sleep that you want. And you have to go through all of those factors and still find a way to put out a performance required to get the result. And MLS teams have improved in that sense a little bit over the past couple of years, but the overall record shows that it's not a scenario where MLS teams succeed very often. Yeah, and, you know, as I'm thinking it through and listening to your answers, it also, it's very hard, and I don't you don't want to, but it's a very hard socioeconomic difference as well, where, you know, when you hear uh, the Alawalense fans singing uh, Esta Noche, the, the Tonight We Must Win, you feel like, it's like, wow, these guys feel like they have to win. Whereas when you see it at a D.C. United match, uh, all due respect to, to, the, to the supporters, if United loses, it's, uh, oh, well, I'm heading home. Maybe we'll stop and get a craft beer on the way home, and then we'll uh, head to our house and get up and go to work the next day, where I feel like the Costa Rican fans, it's, this is life and death to them. It feels that way when they're playing. It's, it's a difference of perspective, right? Yes. Uh, MLS fans and supporters are diehards. They invest so much in the club, in the results, and you see it every day. Just scroll, scroll through Twitter and, and see some of that stuff, or, or check up Reddit, and, and just look at some of the debates they're having. They're very invested, but it's a small group of people in comparison to you know, the, the fan base at, at Club America or even the fan base at, at place like El Wednesday. You're not just talking about a group of, of hardcore supporters. You're talking about cities. You're talking about countries. And you're talking about pervasive pressure where if you go out after a loss, someone on the street might say, hey, what were you guys doing? Or, hey, let me swear at you for a few minutes yeah. because I'm ticked off that you lost. It's different. Yeah. And that's just part of it. It's a fascinating uh, thought and discussion and debate, and uh, I thank you for, for engaging with me. Uh, Fox Sports 2 will have that finals, or the two-leg finals, as well as all the UEFA coverage, as well as FA Cup, as well as MLS. Uh, I love Soccer Sunday, and uh, I love what Fox is doing. And Kyle, I love reading your stuff as well. Kyle McCarthy, thanks for checking in. I appreciate the time. Hey, thanks for having me. It's an interesting discussion, one I'd like to delve into, maybe a roundtable discussion at some point. Uh, that's not exactly what Pitch Pass is all about. Thank you very much to Fox Sports' Kyle McCarthy for his insights on that and the U.S. men's national team and basically everything else, including Sporting Kansas City versus Philadelphia Union. The match of the week last week, and the guy who scored the goal that kind of started turning the tides back from Philadelphia Union's favor to Sporting Kansas City and their eventual victory is defender Jaleel Alibaba. He joins us right now. Jaleel, how are you, my friend? Doing well. And you? I'm very well. Thank you for taking some time. I know you just got out of a uh, very, very uh, intense meeting with Peter Vermees, I would assume. <laughs> I was just a, just a meeting about what, we, what we've been doing well so far, pretty much. I, saw, I thought everything Peter Vermees does is really, really intense. So I'm assuming the meetings are just as intense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, every, everything is intense that needs to be intense. Let's just put it at that. Well, give me give me a lighter side of Peter Vermees' story so that we don't think that he's just all fire and brimstone, even in, in off the pitch. Yeah, I mean, I think he comes across a little bit more 
more intense and over the top than he is. You know, it's more about making sure everybody's all on the same page. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's all, it's all positive at the end of the day, which, uh, everyone responds to. When, when does he get loosey goosey, uh, tr- on travel days, on off days, uh, <laughs> preseason? I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, he has a, he has a jovial side to him. So, I mean, it's, it's not that often that he's that he's loose and, and jovial with us, to be fair. Well, let me ask you this. Will he be at the Game of Thrones viewing party that Sporting Kansas City is putting on this weekend? I don't know. You're going to have to ask him. <laughs> well, will you? Um, it lo- it's looking that way, yeah. Any truth to the rumors that you uh, encouraged the Sporting Kansas City marketing staff to encourage people to dress up as their favorite Game of Thrones character at the viewing party? I have never said that, but uh, it, it might be it might be interesting to see some some guys dress up. Well, are you you a Game of Thrones fan? Yeah, sure, for sure. Have you read the books, or are you just I, a TV guy? I've I've not. I just uh, just watch the watch the series. Well, are, do you get annoyed like I do when the book people tell you, "Oh, just wait, just wait"? Uh, no. I mean, I'm cool with that. Just as long as I'm cool. Um, did I don't know if you heard, uh, but the the show itself uh, they just came out and said that the show will spoil the books and that the show will be done before the last book is. So we get to laugh last as TV viewers. Yeah, I've heard that. So I'm interested to see what this what this next season has has for us. If you had to dress as your favorite Game of Thrones character, who would you dress as? Um, I don't know. Probably. Well, Lord Stark gets. Text out of the series pretty quick, but he's yes. he's a legend in my eyes. So, so Ned Stark would be the guy you address as. Yeah, I would have, I would have to go with that. Yeah, you, you know, it'd be cool if you did dress that way. You sh- you would dress as beheaded Ned Stark, so you just carry a head on underneath of your arm the entire time. I would I would prefer to keep my head on my butt. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you because that match uh, this past weekend uh, at Sporting Park was was literal insanity, uh, both figuratively and on the pitch. What was it like to be a part of a match like that where just everything was happening and it was all happening at the end? Yeah, I mean, like you said, it was crazy. But, um, you know, I think uh, that game kind of just sums up, you know, our, our attitude as a club, our attitude as as uh, players on the field, and then more importantly, you know, the, uh, the attitude of the fans. They stick with us throughout the entire match, every match, and um, it shows. And I, gotta, I have to ask, because a lot of people ask visiting teams what it's like to come into an atmosphere like that and how intimidating it is. Is there any downside of the atmosphere for, for the, the home side? And I guess the only uh, downside could be was you, you, maybe you guys get a little too amped up by the way the crowd's reacting? Uh, I mean, I don't think... I don't. I don't think you can get too amped up. You know. I think, uh, like I said, the atmosphere is amazing. You know, we all we all fortunate to, to play in front of those fans uh, week in and week out. So yeah, I mean, I guess I guess my my question really is: uh, is it is it does it make it difficult for you to keep your assignment, to keep doing your job, and maybe not push forward as much when when you've got that big swell of of enthusiasm from the fans and things like that? No, no, no. I think it's uh, if anything, it's 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 fuel for us. I think uh, obviously it's our job to to keep the game in perspective, you know. Um, but um, you know, I think that that has to do with with all of us being on the same page and you know putting in putting in good shifts and on the training pitch. So come game time, it's just more about um, us translating that energy into into good football.
I'm not going to put you on the spot by asking you to compare Sporting's atmosphere to Seattle's atmosphere, but I do want to ask you uh, maybe some of the differences in the atmosphere. Uh, obviously, I'm assuming you're going to say both atmospheres are great, um, but how does Sporting's atmosphere differ from Seattle's atmosphere? Um, you know, the, uh, the fans of Sporting Park are physically closer to the pitch, so that that helps in terms of... Uh, making it a little bit more hostile for, for opposing teams. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's uh, it's all about, like I said, it's all about the energy that they, they exude, which translates onto the pitch. And, you know, um, like I said, I don't know if you heard in my previous answer when I was breaking up, I said that, um, you know, we all feel we all feel fortunate to play in front of um, our fans on a weekly basis. And um, it's, it's we uh we carry we carry that pride on the pitch with us um and i think last week on sunday it showed did and obviously everybody knows that sporting's atmosphere is top notch um when you came in as a visitor did you feel the intimidation factor from the the fans of sporting kansas city um yeah i mean for sure everyone everyone knows when when they come in to sporting parts that it's gonna that, that it's a hostile environment you know every, everyone knows that there's no secret there but um at the same time too um for visiting teams it, it gives them an extra extra boost yeah. as well especially if um you know it's it's an opposing team that isn't used to playing in front of a packed stadium each uh through or on a, on a weekly basis so i mean um, as as teams may feel a little, little bit of intimidation, it definitely does give them a boost as well, so in turn makes us more sharp. I've watched the replay of your goal, which tied up the match against uh, the Union, uh, a number of times. You don't even, like, give a second look once you head it in. You you immediately run to the sidelines. I thought when I first saw it that, that Christian got a, a piece of it and knocked it in. You didn't even you didn't even give that a second thought. That was your goal all the way, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, first and foremost, I mean, if Christian doesn't make that run in front of their near post, yes, my my goal, it, the ball doesn't ever go in. Um, so I mean, that I mean, I have to credit him for for making that run across the goal mouth. But um, yeah, I definitely saw it go through cleanly. Um, but I think uh, on on different angles, it looked a little bit. Um, more like he touched the ball, but from where I was, I I could see that he didn't touch it. But again, I mean, if he doesn't if he doesn't make that run, um, the uh, the ball that I that I got on the end of it has no chance of going in. I'm going to ask you a question of news that's kind of breaking today out of Philadelphia, and that is uh, Imboli left the team. Uh, they're not sure he's going to be back with the Union. Um, looking at it on TV, his body language just looked a little sour uh, throughout the match. Did you pick up anything, or did anybody, uh, did maybe Dom, who was a little closer to him most of the match, pick up anything and kind of relay it back to you guys of, hey, man, we got this guy rattled. Let's let's keep throwing things at him because we I think we can get something by him. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not here to talk about what's going on in their locker room. I think what, uh, what happened on Sunday night was just, you know, a function of us putting them under under a lot of pressure, you know, and, and – um, playing with confidence inside of their their 18-yard box. Um, you know, obviously, we throw a lot of guys forward on set pieces, and um, and that's just because we're, we're confident in what we can do. And, um, you know, it, it obviously obviously showed on, on Sunday night with all of our goals coming, coming within the 18-yard box, basically. 
I'm used to seeing you on the inside of, of the defensive back line. You've been playing on the outside uh, with Sporting Kansas City. How does that compare to, to playing center back? Um, you know, obviously it's a it's a different feel. Um, there's different different demands with each position on the pitch. But um, you know, right right back is a position that you know I def I, I enjoy a lot because it gets to get to get forward, get involved yeah. in the attack. But um, you know, I think uh, my experience across the back line in multiple positions also um, helps add some solidity to the back solidity to the back line. So you know. Uh, it's it's good, and um, I think uh, so far the back line has been playing pretty well, but we're just uh, working hard to, to keep improving. You mentioned about the chances to get forward more when you're playing outside on the, on the defensive back line. Uh, Two-part question. First, did, did Peter tell you after you acquired that you were going to spend some time at outside back? And if that's the case, do you go into training uh, preseason and training for preseason a little differently, knowing that you're going to need a little higher level of fitness playing outside rather than inside? Um, you know, I never, I never looked at it that way. I always looked at it as, um, you know, coming into the training camp, I needed to be as, as fit as possible, and that was, that was my goal over the off season. And that's, you know, always, always my goal over the off season to maintain a pretty, pretty high level of fitness. Um, just just so that if I need to play anywhere across the back line or any position, really, I'm fit enough to do so. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk to you about uh, your Nigerian heritage. Um, I know you take great pride in your heritage. Um, and I was wondering, you got Ike on your team. Um, I'm thinking also about Amobi Akugo, who is now Orlando City. Do you guys have a certain bond as Nigerian-Americans where you, you have that special thing where when you see each other, you, you kind of talk and, and, and do things culturally? Uh, yeah, yeah, we do have a special bond through, through our culture. Um, you know, um, it's funny back in, back in California, Moby and I are from, from the same area and our dads are, are pretty close and they discuss our games on a, on a pretty frequent basis. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's how Nigerian culture is. It's very close knit. And, um, you know, uh, I think that, that's actually helped me transition to, to Sporting Casey. Um, you know, Ike's been a huge help um, from day one. And, um, you know, our relationship and our chemistry on the pitch, I think, has showed in the last few games. Um, and did I leave anybody else uh, in MLS who, who would be kind of part of that, that, that circle? I don't, I don't want to omit anyone. I mean, if you talk, <laughs> about, if you talk about Nigeria and football, yeah. you, have to, you have to mention a lot of So, yeah. Um, you know, we, we definitely enjoy playing together in Seattle. So um, he and I have a, have, a, have a good relationship as well. I, uh, I'm a big Ajax fan, so uh, I also have an affinity for Nigerian soccer. Uh, watching Watching Finiti growing up, uh, watching Canoe growing up, and just their style of play was just so much fun to watch. And I know you're a fan of the Nigerian national team as well. Of course. Of course, yeah. Kanu, Kanu is my all-time favorite footballer. Um, so yeah, the fact you mentioned him, um, yeah, I mean, their style of play back then, uh, was amazing and, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it was, a uh, it was a fun, it was a fun time to watch them play for sure. So does your relationship with Amobi extend to the point where maybe you hit him up, uh, going into last weekend, just saying, Hey, anything, anything I could, I need to know about the union before we go up against them? Uh, I mean, our relationship is close enough in the sense that we we talk on a frequent basis um at least at least 
a couple times a week. I talk to him Obi. But I mean, in terms of getting getting information, no, because I mean, in in this league, we we've all played against each other so many so many times. I mean, it's just a matter of you know staying focused and being ready being ready to take on the task at hand. You tap dance around that question just enough, Jaleel, that I think maybe a couple of tidbits were exchanged through text uh, last week before the match. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't have yeah, to say I mean, you don't have to give all your secrets away. I understand. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> gotta gotta keep something in my back pocket. Well, Jaleel, uh, congratulations on your goal that uh, kind of started turning the tide back to a Sporting Kansas City win. And good luck this weekend versus RSL. I know it's a big rivalry match. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. show information, go to pitchpass.com.